So I met my guests many years ago, and from almost the first moment, I knew we'd be friends for life. I'm older than him, and he flatters me by calling me his mentor, and how I blazed a trail for other entrepreneurs to follow. The truth is, and I guess I'm revealing it to him today, is the exchange of learning, support, ideas, and inspiration, and even the laughter and sadness have always been mutual. We had a belief that everyone was creative, and I still have this belief today. And I think it's a shame that, you know, we tell kids four years old, when we ask them to draw a picture of a horse, that your horse looks better than my horse, and that my horse can't have wings and unicorns and seven legs, because that's not what a horse looks like. I just have always bucked that trend, right? I always believed creativity was just what you made it. His name's Mark Ferrier. He's a wonderful human being, a great husband, father, and a friend. And he's been an entrepreneur for over 25 years. Some might say he was born in success, but you'll quickly learn that in fact he was raised in circumstances that very few escape from, where many might disappear into a life of substance abuse or questioning or even crime, ongoing struggles with mental health. Like many others I've covered in this show, he's somebody who's overcome circumstances, chased his dreams, and changed his world and ours for the better. How did Mark do all this? Well, you have to listen to find out. This is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Mark, it's, it's great to see you, <laughs> having you on this podcast. I think I've been after you for about two years now, but uh, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Yeah, thanks, Tony. And, and it's really kind of cool to see your and my relationship continue now into a totally new format being this podcast and be able to talk about all the history, but also, I guess, about the future. So I'm super pumped and excited to spend some time with you today. Mark, in the next 40 minutes, we're going to unpack a lot. I want to learn about your entrepreneurial journey. I want to talk about your backstory that I teased at the opening segment, but you've also been to Harvard. You surround yourself with thought leaders all over the world. So I want to get a sense from you what Western societies need to push their economies forward. So it's a bit of a marathon we're on, but that's what the show's all about. Talk about your upbringing. And we, you know, you always say this is sort of the boring, how middle-class America sort of portrays suburbs. So just give me a sense of where you grew up. For me, there's nothing that at the surface of the story, if you just read the, as we also joke, the Coles Notes version, that would seem like anomaly. But when you dig a bit deeper, and it's probably taken me 25 years to be able to actually dig deeper and be in situations where you've got to be more transparent and more vulnerable. I grew up in, in Toronto on the east side, you know, and you would say in a really white picket fence kind of area. It was stuck literally between what people at the time would have said was tough Scarborough and Pickering. And at the time, Pickering was almost farm country. And so when we grew up there, it was literally like out of the movies. I think it was a bunch of people that were striving to hit middle class. I think it was really an affordability thing. I think they were able to go be there and feel like they had presence. And when you sort of scratch the surface and go a little bit level deeper, it, it was a great situation, but it had its flaws. Like I joked with a friend the other day and said, we used to play soccer on John's Manfield. That, that was a nuclear power plant. Like, and we literally played soccer on the field. The street beside it, parents were dying at 42. To sort of think back at a time, you thought that was normal. But I think what was actually happening was a bunch of people that were striving for success, striving for that next level, my parents included, got caught up in this neighborhood. And I don't know how much of it was fiction versus reality. And I think that those pressures led to a lot of really, you know, unfortunate and probably fortunate, if you dig a bit deeper, outcomes in life. 
and some really, really important lessons that it probably took me almost 40 years to remember and learn. Talk to me about your parents. What, what was your mom like? Yeah, my mom was, you know, technically a stay-at-home mom for a little while. She was a buyer at Eaton's in the way back days, in the heydays of Eaton's and loved it and would go to New York and all of that. And then my mom stayed home with me for a little while and then went back and actually became a rep in her own entrepreneurial business. So she had a business that was selling and repping Canadian artists. Um, by the way, my mom's 78, still does it today. And she really bought and brought that passion and drive of creativity, I think. And that was the first inkling of creativity that I, I sort of inherited as a kid. I was an athlete and creativity and athletics at that time, I don't think were really symbiotic at the time. And then my dad, my dad was a super interesting guy. He was very successful at a young age in the car business and, you know, flirted with buying into dealerships, but really ran dealerships and high profile dealerships in Toronto and then around he was one of the first ones to actually pivot into car leasing at the time, which if you think 30 years ago was not really the way that you invested in a car. And all of that kind of goes back to what I said earlier, which was I think some of that he still struggled with on a daily basis and not because he didn't provide necessarily, but because I think somewhere in this white picket fence world, living up to the reality of he was a car guy versus other careers you know, put a lot of pressure on my dad that at the time people didn't talk about because it wasn't necessarily financial pressure every day, but I think it was emotional. And I think it was intellectual pressure of being in purpose that unfortunately 40 years ago, we didn't really talk about. You know, I've always challenged people that go, I don't want to be a salesperson. You know, that, that Willie Loman death of a salesperson. And I'm going, every piece of advice I give young people is learn how to sell. You will never break the tie. You, I don't know whether you're an artist, whether you are an athlete, no matter what you do in life, you need to sell yourself. You need to sell who you are, why you matter and why what you offer matters. It, but he did he struggle with that? Because that was the stigma around then. Oh, there's the guy that just goes out and sells cars every day. Yeah, I think he was amazing at selling cars. I think my dad would have been one of those people that told you the story of why you needed the car if you were in the dealership. I, I don't think his purpose was a struggle in the function of his job. I think potentially at times his purpose became a struggle in the storybook of life where you had to go to the cocktail parties or talk to the hockey parents. And, you know, there were doctors and lawyers and builders and all of these people and, and you were a car guy. And, and by the way, he never used those words. I think he was a proud guy, but when you look at how the pressures started to get to him later in life, you realize that some of this ethos was really there. At 45, and you talk about the pressures in life, he sort of turns his back on security, whatever security a car industry can provide, and decides to become an entrepreneur. That's long in the tooth for a lot of people because you're often risking everything you built to date. I mean, that's the one of the things about being a small business owner is your assets are on the line. Yeah. And, and I'm not sure it was the most well thought out plan, if I'm super honest, but I think it was a purpose driven plan that he left the car business. He felt like the car business was once again, didn't have the status, but being an entrepreneur, he jumped at an opportunity to try and be an entrepreneur. Like most entrepreneurs, he did it in a way that was a somewhat dysfunctional partnership with somebody else because that was his big first step. But even worse than that, I think about that, he did it, didn't really have a lot of security in it. It was in, you know, he was a car brokerage business, which is sort of a, a middleman strategy in the car business. And he had a kid going to university. So I was the first person going to university and he did all of that within about eight months. Uh, left his job, started a new business, dug in, 
And like all entrepreneurs at a certain point felt all those pressures. And so I think the dream of being an entrepreneur that we all talk about because it's sexier at a cocktail party, I think the reality of being an entrepreneur and having to live through all of those pressures um, was a really hard shock at times. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Mark Ferrier, good friend, someone I admire for his character and his approach to life. So, Mark, take me back to December 23rd, 1998. You're 26 years old, but instead of wrapping presents, you have to unwrap the realities of a phone call from your mom that would change, I think, everybody in your family's life forever. Yeah, it, it's funny you say that day, Tony, and I still swallow in my throat. And, and it's 25 years ago, literally this year. Um, and so this is one of those moments in life I can talk about now and, and I've started to talk about publicly, but for a long time I hid. So that day, actually, I was on a business trip in Montreal and it was one of those times at 26, you actually got to go on the, uh, the sort of the, the leadership business trip. So I was chest out, having a great time. We were in Montreal and my mom was desperately trying to get a hold of me, like 10 phone calls on one of those block cell phones at the time. And I was in a business meeting, so I didn't do it. I landed back in Toronto and I picked up the phone and my mom finally got a hold of me. She was beyond, you couldn't even understand her on the phone. So I thought somebody passed away in my family. And then she said to me in black and white words, like there was no coding it. Your dad's in prison. He's robbed a bank. You can't comprehend those words. To be fair, if you go back to, I grew up in a, a middle-class family. You know, we didn't really feel like we, we would ever be in a situation where somebody robbed a bank. What happened at the time was my dad was obviously suffering a lot of pressure financially. My dad was also going through what was later diagnosed as a dissociative disorder where he was in such a mental state of he became living two lives, which is why I can look back on the history. So he could live the life that was daily that he had to get through in his own head. And then he would pretend to live the life in that we were all leaving. And he literally could separate the two lives. And so what happened was he, you know, had obviously thought about what are my options in life? He didn't talk about it, unfortunately. In hindsight, as we learned, he basically had two options. He was either going to take his own life or he did what seems like probably the most improbable and illogical thing ever, which was he walked into a bank calmly. Uh, he talked to the tellers. He told them he was robbing the bank. In a crazy turn of events, which I've learned through going through all of this, he actually got into the vault, which is even crazier. He took the money out and by the time he got out of the bank, someone had obviously called from an ATM or something and said, hey, there's a situation. When he got out, the police were there. And with that, there was no altercation. There was a couple other instances that happened in the legal situation that he unraveled, but he, he was fully robbed a bank. And then based on trying to figure out how to get out of that situation with the police there, he, he, he basically confiscated a car. And those two things are super important because what happened was as we got into it, learning that your father had robbed a bank was terrible. But as we all look at these legal things at the time, you're like, oh, well, you know, he was mentally unstable, so that's going to be okay. But what actually happened, Tony, was, was probably even more dramatic and scarier, which was based on how the situation went down, he actually had been charged with something that was four years plus one. And when that happens, you have to go to maximum security prison. So my dad was 58 years old decided that this was a better option to live in than not live in, which 
imagine that pressure to make that choice. Middle neighborhood, remember, like, like this isn't like this stuff happened all around us. Um, and so from 58, when he, he, he actually committed a crime, um, the story starts to unravel. And you can imagine us as a family had no skill set to manage this, had no resources to manage this, pretended that this reality wasn't true because of the neighborhood we grew up in. Um, but at the time he was on like CTV news at six o'clock. And so that, that date is, is obviously a pivot point and a trajectory in all of our lives, his mind and everything that, that was unplanned for. I don't think I had the skill set to even deal with it for another 20 years, if I'm very honest. Um, really, I think was the first situation where I realized that in life, there's a difference between a mistake and a failure. My dad made a horrific mistake, a horrific mistake, but I think suicide in his world was a failure. And I, it took me a long time to unpack that, but it's been a life lesson that I've learned ever since. Did your dad ever talk to you about what it was like to be in that prison or did you have any experience visiting him there or was it just sort of, I'm going to just run from this as fast as I can? Well, yeah, both. The answers are both. So number one, the way the legal system works is it's not quite that instantaneous. So you obviously get arrested, you go to trial, they let you go to bail. And so he was home for Christmas. So if you, sorry, um, that's not true. He was home for Christmas break. So happened on December 23rd. I think by December 27th, he was home. Then it goes into a process and the process is years and the years pile on. And I think it was about three or four years of, you know, lawyers and and mental institutions. And I remember sitting with my dad, I was about after two and a half years on the dock. And he finally looked at me and said, look, Mark, we got to move on with life. I'm terrified. I'm 50. He was almost 60 at the time. And he said, look, I need to go pay for my crime. I got it. I did it. And so he made the decision to sort of wrap up the legal proceedings of trying to find loopholes for lack of a better term. And he went and, and I literally remember like you drive your dad to the a police station, they check him in. And then he actually ended up in Millhaven, maximum security prison. So if anyone's a tragically hip fan, it's actually in the song 38 years old. And this is where I'll answer your question, Tony, in two sides. It is exactly like the movies. You drive up the gates, the, you check everything in, you've got to walk through. Um, I remember I said to my mom, I would go first. And so you drive in and I was terrified. You're like, this is a movie. This can't be real. This can't be real. This can't be real. This can't be real. And then finally you're sitting in front of a glass window and you pick up the phone and my dad's on the other side of the glass, right? At 60 years old. I honestly think that whole experience I just buried for probably 15 years and you just got through it as a task. But interestingly, the guy on the other side of the glass was a different man than I'd known in the last five or 10 years. It was like all the pressure of all this stuff that he had bottled up and all the guilt that he had and all these emotions were gone. And he was a man with a, a purpose and a soul again. And as the narrative goes down, think about this. He's a 68-year-old man in a maximum security prison. So the two fundamental things that he did and realized were, one, he needed a purpose. He, and I guess a bunch of his fellow community, voted him as general manager of the store. I guess they all said, hey, we can trust this guy. And so he took a lot of pride and purpose of figuring out how to navigate the store. And you can imagine how that worked. There's trades and there's dollars and there's cents and stuff that I can't even fathom. He got going at it. And then the second one was he, jo- he joined, I guess at the time it was a church. I don't think they called it a church. I think they called it like, you know, the community or something. And he started rebuilding purpose almost from day one inside a maximum security prison and something that he'd struggled to at times figure out in 
I would say middle income Scarborough. He was able to figure out literally in days and months, once he had the relief of, I made the mistake, it's public, now I can move on. And as we sort of wrap up this part of the segment, not that I would, I mean, I could do a whole show and what you and your dad and this experience, but understand he came out of prison and he continued with this sort of new value set, became a, a bus driver, thankfully lived long enough to become a grandfather. But he, hit, he got hit with another blow, which was cancer. This is where the movie gets to be the movie you don't want, right? Where imagine this, he comes out. He did an amazing job, by the way. Like so much so, I, I think he broke some record of going from maximum security prison to minimum security prison to out of prison in less than 15 months. He worked really hard to get a job and he became a bus driver, long trip bus driver, drove it, loved it, thrived on it, had purpose in it. People loved him doing it. Um, we were very fortunate at the time that, that my wife Beth and I were able to have both our children. Quinn was born in April 2010. Um, there's nothing my dad loved more than being a grandfather. And so seeing that purpose and joy happened. And then in October 2010, he was driving the bus and got in two car accidents in one day. Hit, hit the right side of the bus twice. And I remember talking to him about it that weekend. And he was beside himself because he had so much pride in this job. And so they went to go test his eyes and then suddenly realized, unfortunately, it wasn't his eye. He had a brain tumor, glioblastoma multiforma, which unfortunately in this day and age still has a 0% survival rate. Um, he unfortunately passed away in about six months. You know, once again, another blow to, hey, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't understand how these blows keep happening. I wasn't supposed to have them, right? I had a somewhat good lifestyle at the time. I grew up in middle Scarborough. I went to university. I had a job. I was actually running a company at the time, Tony, that that you and I had a good relationship in. And then this other blow happens. My dad went from, uh, you know, bipolar, alcoholic, abusive. Uh, but at the end, he fought his way back to health. Grandkids loved him. And I remember thinking, I don't think I could love him any more than I do now. And it's because of the journey that he went on, and the more I reflect on it, how hard he fought to to battle mental health and to battle alcohol and to reclaim his dreams is just to me one of the defining moments of my life. And I'm, I'm, it must be the same with you. I think sitting here today, Tony, at 50, my dad robbing a bank was the greatest gift he ever gave me. And seeing him realize that probably all the other that mattered that ground him out for years didn't matter when he was a grandfather. And so seeing that smile on his face, seeing the relationship he had with my children, it, yeah, it was unbelievable. And just to realize that life is a movie, it's, it's not still pictures and it's not in one year or one chapter or one decade, took me a long time to realize. We come back, Mark shares his journey. We'll talk briefly about the love of his life and his beautiful girls, but because it's Small Business Month, I really want to focus on where this individual is so gifted, building businesses, and not just for wealth, but places where people prosper. It's Tony Chapman from Chatter That Matters. I asked Canadians about their money matters. We talked debt, inflation, interest rates, and many were worried, and some felt they could lose everything. In response, RBC has created My Money Matters. It's a site where you gain financial knowledge. You learn how to manage debt, reduce stress. There's even tools and apps to help you deal with the realities of today. Visit rbc.com slash money matters. Your financial well-being matters to you and to RBC. 
You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Mark Ferrier, the founder and CEO of his latest venture, And Capital. So, Mark, we've known each other a long time. I consider you one of the best entrepreneurs. Give the audience just a quick highlight reel of what you've done so that we can really spend time on how you did it. Yeah, so I was fortunate enough to have some people early on in my career that gave me an opportunity when I was probably in that 26, 27 range where I could be a minor partner and feel like an entrepreneur in a sweat equity world. Obviously, people have heard the first part of the story, so I had no money to put into it. But I think that that really gave me this purpose and autonomy and in some ways gave me the opportunity to sort of chase some of the demons from my past. And so I was in the marketing sales promotion business where the first business that we owned was a company called Launch. I ended up exiting that business in once again, a crazy turn of events where I had partners suing us and lawsuits flying around and at 30 years old, stuff that I had no comprehension of. Uh, that business, with the help of some good people, I was able to pivot into a business called Traffic. And that business was really followed the jet stream of a business that Tony, you owned at the time called Capital C. And we built that business up in the marketing communications. Uh, you know, you were helping us in a lot of ways as the independent voice. And we were another independent agency in Canada. I built that business up. 2015, we sold the business. And then I had the benefit of going on the private equity side, which I had no understanding of. And actually helped them acquire businesses in North America, Europe, and, and then even had the opportunity to set up Mexico City and some other sort of offshoring options to sort of learn how the economy was evolving. Within it all, you know, and I'll have little social clips of you, but if I can just tell you what Mark looks like, he's, he's tall, he's got a booming voice, he's got a presence. One thing I know about you that a lot don't is that you might have buried a lot of your dad. But inside, there was some demons. There was an imposter syndrome. There was just sort of trying to come to terms with who you are. How did you finally let that come to the surface? You channeled it to become an even better person versus what a lot of people might do is just succumb to it. Somewhere I read a quote. I think it was Martin Soskazy said it in his actual biography about, if you want to understand the son, understand the story of the father. I didn't really understand that, I don't think. But I had the fortune of being part of a business group the business group is called YPO. And, and through that, in happenstance and somebody believing me, I had the opportunity to actually go and, and do a, an executive MBA at Harvard. When I was there, you sort of sit in study groups. And one of the nights, everyone was sharing stories. There was this lady who I got to know super well, who was from uh, Nigeria, actually. And she was sharing her life story and the situations they'd gone through in this confidence and aura tone this pain and chaos that she grew up in and building businesses and family situations and deaths and murder. And, and as she was sharing it, you just saw the entire energy of the room around you change. And everybody leaned in and, and didn't see the horrors, saw the sharing as like connection points all around. For some reason, that night is the first time I ever said publicly in a group of people. And, and these people I was intimidated by. They were entrepreneurs and business owners from all around the world. And I was sitting at Harvard and I'm like... Farrier, what are you doing? And and literally the words came out and the energy and momentum and gift that came back to me was something that I was unprepared for. As people didn't judge it, they were sharing in it, they were sharing their own experiences. And in some ways, it humanized me with almost a superpower of confidence that hadn't been there in probably 20 years of my career that I always joke and say I was in sales and marketing and, and probably the best marketing I did was telling people that I had all my you know, world together for 20 years. 
And I didn't, I had this big secret in, in, in the background. And so I think when I realized it was the greatest gift my dad gave me, which is watching the human energy that when you share some of your scars from the past, how that actually connects people, especially when people look at me probably in a lens that they don't expect some of those things because I, I, I didn't grow up underprivileged or in a chaotic environment. Talk to me a little bit about Beth, who you've mentioned in your two girls and what role do they play in who Mark Ferrier is? Yeah, once again, this is twice in 40 minutes, Tony, made me do one of those deep swallows. Um, I met Beth actually in for one of my first marketing jobs, which we'll all laugh about, which is at the Pepsi Taste Patrol in 1995. From that day forward, I always would have said to people, if they asked me, hey, there's two women I'm in love with and neither one of them want me. And Beth was one of them. And I, I was very fortunate to get our past cross again at a job early on when I was actually sort of in my first entrepreneurial gig and, and we just kind of connected and connected in a situation that, you know, at the time I was in a relationship, but I just knew this was the person. And so I unraveled that relationship and Beth and I've been together ever since, uh, we had two girls, um, RK or Riley Kate is they call her RK and, and Quinn. And I think interestingly, Beth and my two girls really, taught me how to be a full human being because as a person growing up, bearing all these emotions, growing up in sport in a masculine family and, you know, you just outwilled things. You didn't talk through things and you didn't try and understand how things worked. And I don't think I'm perfect at that every day, but definitely my daughters and my wife have taught me to be the whole person, not the half person who can just will things together. You have to want things to come together and listen better and all of those things. And by the way, they still teach me that today. So, and capital. I mean, we were talking about this business when you were just swirling it around your head and you've, you're off to the racetracks. You've kind of moved out of advertising in the services business to much more in the infrastructure business. So explain the business and what led you to this and how do you determine that this is an opportunity versus just uh, a dream? I think this has been a culmination of 25 years from the entrepreneurial dreams and creativity that my mom had, my dad's passion to pivot in creativity. And, you know, my dad was sort of a blue collar entrepreneur, for lack of a better term, he's in the car business. And then I had the benefit of working in a super highly creative space where people really paid us and I say us because they paid you as well at times to help their businesses grow. And so we really focused on helping businesses grow over the 10 or 15 years that I was in that space of sales and marketing. And what I realized was that was actually my passion. My passion was about how do we unlock growth in businesses by unlocking the power of their people and all of those things. And so when I'd had the benefit of being able to step away from chapter one of my career and look into chapter two, the two things that I realized I super loved were helping businesses grow. And really, really building cultures and people as the superpower of businesses. I met a lot of smart people and I'd sort of been tired of the business that I was in. And what I realized was there is a massive part of our economy that some people will call blue collar. Some people call unsexy. Some people will call, you know, sort of the hidden part of our marketplace. But it's super important, which are these service centric businesses that really keep the economy going. HVAC that keeps our schools and businesses open. Think about safety services that train people to go build the houses and, and markets that we know. So there's sort of under layers of businesses that don't get the sexiness or appeal that a lot of our core businesses do. Most of these businesses are people driven. Most of these businesses are sort of under a hundred employees. And the scary part to me is about three quarters of them need to transition or 
transform these businesses in the next five to 10 years because either the founders are aging out and they don't have a strategy for them. And so we got really, really excited about it. For a long time when capital was cheap, um, there was a lot of capital going into these businesses and it was very much a capital first strategy, which was let's find them, let's buy them, let's invest in them, theoretically help them grow and probably in three to five years, maybe five to seven, you know, as investors will flip these businesses to the next round of people. And we took a totally different strategy which was, well, hold on a minute. These businesses are around 15, 16, 30 years. Why would you sell them, right? Like, why would you not keep them in the economy? Because who is going to keep the HVAC going in the kids' schools? Or who is going to help train people to go build the, what is it, 700,000 homes we need, even in Ontario? We came up with the name And Capital, which I joke and say, maybe one of my worst marketing names ever, Tony. But there, it was on purpose to say, hey, look, if we can partner with founders and really find partners and founders that care about things that are greater than the capital. They care about legacy. They care about their customers. They care about the communities in which their employees have jobs in and pay taxes in and all of those things. And then we could align on the value set and values, not value. Then we could actually go invest in these businesses with like-minded founders and keep those businesses running for the future. So we say that we're a capital second strategy. Number one, Second of all, we also say we're a permanent capital situation where we don't bring investors in to flip these companies in five to seven years. We took a permanency view on them. that These businesses need to be in the economy for the next 50 years. So, Mark, we were talking about different ideas where you and I could work together and create some content for small business. One of the ideas I really like that you have is weaving the bank into the narrative. Yeah, I've had the benefit of probably looking at 100 businesses over the last 24 months that we've looked at that are all in service businesses. And these are the heartbeat of the economy. They're between, you know, 10 million in revenue, some are 2 million in revenue. And the relationship with the bank is super interesting, which is it's still a very intimidating relationship with the bank. And it's an intimidating relationship because the entrepreneurs are amazing subject matter experts, but the finance world in general is a very intimidating one that creates a bunch of terms, working capital, EBITDA, free cash flow, gross margin. And to people that are in business or business centric, those all seem pretty logical. To a business owner that has built an amazing business in HVAC, in some of these, you know, safety businesses, it's still a very, very transactional and somewhat intimidating environment. And so I think it would be not only demonstrative for people to hear the message, but for people to start to connect to the message that we can humanize some of the actual opportunities to be partners with your bank. And so some of it is in language, some of it is in opportunity to just, you know, take some of the intimidating language and the conversations and humanize them. And if the bank can be the key to that, I think there's no better partner going forward in the next five years. And do you think that part of that content is we could actually personalize a small business hero, their journey, what they're looking at, get right into their sense of fear and intimidation with the bank because it's a different language and different conversation. And then not only bring the bank in the narrative, but you and I could get involved in sort of saying, here's some ideas that we have to help you grow your business. hundred percent. I think we can get entrepreneurs there. And if we can't get entrepreneurs there, I absolutely think we could either do Q&A or trends that actually pick out four or five very specific things. Just understanding the term working capital, every single founder is intimidated by it. And so what I actually think would be demonstrative for the bank is coming out of some of these sessions is that we actually produce a different type of toolkit that founders can use. 
I think if we could find a way to balance that narrative, almost change the language of the entrepreneurial economy over the next three or five years, you'll see so much different shift in paradigm and relationships. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Mark Ferrier, the founder and CEO of his latest venture, And Capital. What does it take to be an entrepreneur? The two pieces to it are the the attributes it takes to be an entrepreneur, I think are going to have to be different in the next five to 10 years. And I think we're going to see an influx of entrepreneurs. And, And one of the things I'm super passionate about is how do we retrain people? who have been in very good service-centric roles and jobs up until some point in their career. And you're in my old industry, people past 40 age out, which is insanity. But all of those people would be unbelievably great resources as entrepreneurs in infrastructure services. And so one of the passions that I have is how do we you know, repatriate or reprioritize or retrain a lot of those individuals to realize they're amazing. They can be amazing entrepreneurs with all the skill sets they have in service-driven businesses, that may just not be the businesses that they're looking at. And so when you think about that, the number one attribute I think is humility. You need to realize you are not the subject matter expert. And so the humility in understanding how to partner with these businesses, I think is number one. The second one is you really have to build a structure that doesn't come out of an MBA playbook. There are many, many great playbooks in capital markets that will tell you how to get value capture. Let's use that term out of a business, how to cut costs, how to put software in all of those things. We think in a lot of these businesses, that actual playbook doesn't work. You need a value creation playbook. And the value creation playbook is really simple things. The first one is alignment. You've got to understand the values of the business and how all those things work. And you've got to align to the communities and the customers and all those things. The second one is empowerment. You've got to use the people there that are subject matter experts and really make them believe you're investing in them, not a logo or a name or a brand. The third one is culture. And I think a lot of the people that come from outside service businesses can come into some of these infrastructure services business and really unlock cultures. The next one is the value creation side, which is how do you grow the business? Not how do you cut costs from the business? How do you grow the business? And then, you know, the last one then is execution, because once people get that flywheel turning, they get really, really good at getting better at it. You and I are very passionate about Canada. What does this country need to do to become the greatest place on earth, not just to live, but to find that word that you've used probably 15 times in this interview, purpose. We really have got to start with the attitude that we don't want to be number three. We've got to start believing that our entrepreneurs, our communities, and our businesses can be number one, that they can be leaders, and we got to support them like they're being leaders, and we need to play on our front foot. We need to not play for the tie all the time. And then the second piece for me is I really think in order to keep our economy growing and service all the elements that we need to our economy, we actually have to rewrite the narrative. And we have to rewrite the narrative, whether that's between entrepreneurs and financial institutions. I think we need to come up with a totally new language that actually is self-supporting of both, that both are demonstrably working off one set of core directional alignment or whatever you want to call it from that standpoint. Because right now there's still this us and them mentality and a lot of fractures in our economy. And I just don't think that's going to get us there where we are right now as a a Canadian economy. We're on our back foot and we still have a lot of us versus them mentalities. And really, we need a we mentality going forward. You know, if it's the entrepreneurs and the new entrepreneurs that are coming into the marketplaces and our financial institutions, we all need to work together to keep these businesses growing and thriving. That's part. I guess that's my second part. And then the last one is, man, we need a, a lot more creativity. We need a lot more creativity in how we problem solve, how we think about these businesses, how we think about the structures of them. 
and we need to break some more moral paradigms. Um, and I think that that one, I don't have all the answers to. I'll be very honest about that from that standpoint. I don't have all the answers to, but I do know that even if you think about how some of our businesses go to market or how some of our businesses recruit or all of those things, I, I just don't think what worked for the last five or 10 years is going to work for the next five or 10 years. And so creativity needs to be a core business tool in the next five to 10 years if Canada wants to compete. One time you had to pick up the phone and talk to your dad through glass because he was in a, a maximum prison. If you could pick up a phone today and talk to him in heaven, what would you say to your dad? I think the first thing I would say to my dad is thank you. That the thing that he thought was his greatest mistake was actually the greatest gift that he gave me. That I couldn't have been the whole person I am today without my dad allowing me that path by him making a mistake. As your mom's thinking about you, I mean, this is the mom that was the buyer at Eaton, stayed home, had to go back to school, reinvented herself. Was she looking and talking about you? What does she say? Yeah, my mom and I have a great relationship. I, I think she has pride. And at the same time, she, she, you know, she makes sure I have that humbleness. Let's put it that way. And I think my mom is way more proud of how my non-financial world exists in community with my family and my friends and my own self-confidence in being the whole person that I am right now. And I think at times my mom still struggles with that. I think my mom is, misses my dad a ton, but I think she's super proud that I've able to embrace and accept my whole self um, at this stage of my life. So Mark, I always end my shows with my three things and we've covered so many wonderful areas, but the first one I want to talk about is the difference between mistakes and failure. And in this case, it was life and death because your dad made a mistake, but failure was him taking his life. And I think that is an incredible lesson in life for people is not fearing mistakes, learning from them, growing from them, as opposed to just checking out. I think the second one is just how much of your parents roar through you. Because every time I bring them back, you're, you have this smile on your face. You talk about their entrepreneurs. And yeah, your dad probably had to deal with some stigma because he wasn't a lawyer or accountant. But I can tell you something. There's probably days where he came back selling five cars and felt more excitement than any lawyer would be sending another bill in for another file. What he did was really create, as you said, some transformation telling people why they needed a car versus a lawyer papering some deal. But the thing that came through, and you know, I was going to use the word purpose, and I guess I have, but it's really follow your heart. I've known you from the very beginning. You're a softy. You roar with love and passion. You know, I always say head, heart, and hands. You've heard me say that a million times, but yeah, you're incredibly intelligent. You got your Harvard executive MBA and hands, you're a superb executor at what you do. But I think it's your ability to sit down with these owners to tell them, you know what, humility, understand what this business is about. It's not a logo or position statement. It's about people. And I think that you've always followed your heart. And I hope one day, and you're going to laugh because you'll say never, but I hope one day that heart leads you into running Canada, or at least being a very involved in politics, because I think everything that this country needs in terms of youth and creativity and energy and rethinking and reshaping and collaboration versus just anger is you. And that's the type of leadership we need. So when you're ready to go, I will come out of retirement. I will hang up my podcast tile and I will hang door signs and put up lawn signs for you anytime. I, I thank you for all of that. And, and I'll end maybe on one thing. The first time you and I actually met, you met to really come down on me. 
because I had an egotistical and I said something in a meeting that made me come across as super egotistical. You basically told me, hey, look, that's not the way you get stuff done. There's people in the room and, and respect and all those things. And then I don't know if you remember this. You said, hey, th- the thing that you need to remember most in life is you've got to have a soul. Those who have the soul will succeed. But if you don't have a soul, then get out of this business and try and figure out something else to do in life. I don't think I fully understood what that meant when you told me that. But I think what I learned over time was that I had a bit of a battered soul, but I, I was able to reinvent that soul and it could get filled up and it was my guiding light. And so, you know, you said it to me in a dive bar down on King Street, but I've stuck with that for a long time. So me having that light and you helping me understand that soul was the most important part has led a bit to my purpose. Well, thank you. So thank you. Joining me today is Dina Patel. She's the Senior Director for Merchant Experience and Loyalty at RBC. Dina, it was, it's just wonderful you're on the show. And just even talking to you before we started, you just got this great smile and great energy. So I'm very excited you're with me today. Thank you. I appreciate that, Tony. I was so inspired talking to Mark Ferrier. He overcame some challenging family circumstances, including his dad robbing a bank and having to deal with the stigma and the, just the incredible change in life that comes with that. But he refused to surrender to them. He decided instead to learn from the best and go out and build not one, but several businesses. And he, by the way, he credits RBC for going beyond a bank to help him realize his dreams. Does he embody the DNA of a small business owner that just says, no matter what, I'm just going to be focused, relentless, and just constantly chasing opportunity? You know, Mark is a serial entrepreneur. And that spirit that he brings very much in line with small business mindset, where, you know, you have a vision for the business. You have the tenacity and you're willing to take risks. And, you know, you've got that skill set, which is really driven to pursue opportunities. Mark certainly has demonstrated that in spades. And we do see that in people that are out there uh, running and creating their own businesses and, uh, and creating wellness for themselves. Now, Mark talks about where he really looks to you is when he's working with these acquisitions, when he's going after acquiring companies, that instead of you just coming in and talking bank talk, you talk to them as people. RBC actually offers an entire solution suite. Uh, you know, people might not know about it, but beyond uh, banking services that we offer, whether that's from marketing to HR to helping businesses run their operations, we carry that treasured responsibility and relationship with the client and also really put our clients first. Uh, that's part of our culture and it's who we are. Over the years, I've done a number of campus talks. Most of the people are interested in becoming an entrepreneur. Where would you recommend they look just to get a better appreciation and understanding of what it takes to go from dreaming to doing? Well, we've actually got a number of different ways that we can help, whether you're just starting out and thinking about an idea uh, and want to and want to test it and learn from it, or whether you're getting established and trying to grow. Um, We're definitely here to help. And one place you could go is to RBC Owner. That's a place where you can register and incorporate your business. It's a great place to validate creative ideas. You know, entrepreneurs often have ideas on the back of a napkin that they need to socialize and really understand what they could do with and where there may be an opportunity. There's abilities for us to help create business plans. And we really partner with people to help understand what they're trying to strive to achieve and then what they may need to get started. So owner might be a great starting place. I'll make sure I put the link to it because I do believe it's spelled O-W-N-R.com. That's correct. Thank you. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. 
It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.